God's word in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There are some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than the, all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Lord, we know the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. And we ask that your word would do its mighty work this morning in our hearts and lives that we might see you more clearly. Lord, that we would not just hear a man, but we would hear you speaking. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it seemed like another routine pastoral visit. A woman in her 70s had been attending our church for a few years, but she had been battling cancer, and she asked the pastors, me and the senior pastor, to come visit with her at her home. And sadly, her health had not been improving, and it seemed as though her time on earth was short. She never joined the church, but she was at Sunday school almost every week, saying joyfully during the service. The women in her Sunday school class enjoyed her, dearly loved her, and considered her a wonderful Christian. All of this led to an unexpected conversation. She received us into her home, and as we began to talk, we didn't talk so much about her terminal cancer. Rather, she began telling us that the man sitting next to her was not her husband, though they'd been living together for many years. She said, this is why I never joined the church, because I knew if I had wanted to join, y'all would ask, and then y'all would find out I was living with this man, and y'all would not allow that to happen. And yet she said, my impending death has made me realize I need to get this taken care of. I can't live in this rebellion against God. They, and especially the boyfriend, had not wanted to get married for many years, because as some of you know, as you get into retirement years, it can get complicated to get married, because it might mess up your retirement and all of your health care. And it would, and so they had not. But she now, with her boyfriend even next to her, said, this is what we need to do. So she said, next Sunday I would like, since I've been coming to the church for years, to make a confession to the church. And then could we at the beginning of the service have the wedding? So we agreed. And the Sunday came, she was there, her family, everything was ready. And then something really sad and strange happened. But we'll save that for later. And that story is really bringing up the crucial topic of repentance. What do you think of when you hear the word repentance? Is that an old, stodgy word used by serious fire and brimstone preachers of a bygone age? Is repentance just deep sorrow over sin when one comes to Christ? Or back to the woman I was talking to, was that really even necessary? I mean, she trusted Christ. Did she have to live in obedience now? Does that matter? Isn't Christ forgive all our sins? 
anyways? Well, Jesus here is calling the people to repent, and he's warning them because they're seeking to avoid genuine repentance. If you have a bulletin, you should see on the back an outline for the sermon, because first, in verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus over and over telling them, look, focus on your own sin. And then, in verses 6 through 9, he gives them an illustration to say, look, you need to bear fruit before it's too late. But first, in verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus telling them, look, focus on your own sin. And we see that because look at the verses right before this, in verses 57 through 59 of chapter 12. Because there Jesus says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out of it until you've paid the very last penny. And so Jesus had told this illustration saying, God is like that judge who you owe money to, another man. And if you don't pay all your money when you come before the judge, it'll be too late. So you need to get right with the judge. Or in other words, Jesus had just called them to repent. Now, as Jews, this message would have been expected if Jesus were talking to the Gentiles. Well, of course, they need to repent. They're those wicked, horrible Gentiles. But Jesus, we're Jews. I mean, we're sons and daughters of Abraham. And yet Jesus says, no, even you need to repent. And look at chapter 13, verse 1, because then it says, at that very time. So here they hear Jesus call to repent, and what do they do? They have their first evasion tactic. They say, well, what about Pilate? Pilate's a pretty wicked dude. And they're trying to get the focus off themselves onto someone else. Well, what's going on? Well, they're telling of this event. We don't know a lot of details about it, but it seems as though some Galileans were going to worship at the temple, and either while they were sacrificing or while they were on their way, Pilate sent soldiers against them. And the soldiers, whether by accident or intent, killed these men. And news like this flowed around the Israelite area, and they hated Pilate. He was a wicked ruler who oppressed them. And yet, again, Jesus had just told them, you need to get right with God. And what does their focus go to? What about Pilate, though? He's a pretty wicked guy. And what about those Galileans? Because they must have been pretty bad people that they had that happen to them. And yet Jesus will not allow them to avoid the call to repentance. Thus in verse 2, he responds by asking if the Galileans were worse sinners than they were. Now that's the way they commonly thought. They thought if bad things happen to you, it's because you are a bad person. This gets expressed in John chapter 9, there Jesus comes to a man who's born blind, and as Jesus passed by, it says he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's the implication. If you have some suffering in your life, you or one of your relatives did something bad, and God is punishing you. And yet Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus is teaching the biblical idea that due to the curse of sin from Adam and Eve, there is suffering in this world. Listen, in a generic sense, we can say every single single suffering you have in your life, it is due to sin. Whether it's a disease 
whether it's a disaster, whether it's your own depravity, whether it's a death of a loved one, it is due to sin. However, the problem is when we then take it a step further and say, it's due to a specific sin I've committed. And that is often not the case. Our sorrow might be due to the fact that we live in a fallen world. But it doesn't mean that our current suffering is because we did some specific sin that we are being judged for in that moment. And the view that these people had, it didn't come from them being complete idiots. The reason they thought this is because God does punish sin. Think of many examples in the Bible. When Achan stole the gold, the Israelites lost an Ai. When David sinned with Bathsheba, his child was killed. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, they were put to death. And so sin is always punished. However, the error occurs when we think that every suffering we have comes in response to something we personally did wrong. You know, God, though, has graciously chosen not to immediately give us all of our rewards or all of our punishments for our actions. I say gracious because if God rewarded or punished us immediately, how many of us would still be alive today? You know, Jesus tells us, anger in your heart towards another is murder. So I have committed more murders than have ever been known. And yet God did not immediately say the punishment for murder is death. He graciously withheld judgment. God, thankfully, is patient and long-suffering and does not immediately give us what we deserve. Rather, he gives us time to repent and trust Christ. And then the punishment we deserve is put on him. Thus, in summary, we, though we often suffer, it's not because we did something personally sinful or wrong, but because we live in a fallen world. And thus, Jesus gives a similar answer. Verse 3, no, they weren't sin- worse sinners. The Galileans didn't have this death this horrible death by Pilate because they were worse sinners. They shouldn't assume that suffering occurs because someone's more wicked. You know, there's two major implications we should draw from this. First, we shouldn't always judge people by externals. You know, someone being wealthy is not a sign that God's blessing is upon them. And someone being poor is not a sign that they're lazy or some other sin. Randy Alcorn writes, If wealth is a dependable sign of God's approval, and lack of wealth shows his disapproval, then Jesus and Paul were on God's blacklist, and drug dealers and embezzlers are the apple of his eye. It's not true. We can't look and go, okay, I see your prosperity, I see your poverty, okay, I know what God thinks about you. On the flip side, wealth is not a sign that you're greedy, and poverty is not a sign that you're being oppressed. We can't know. We have to look case by case and see what's going on. If we don't heed this advice, then we're going to become like Job's, we would say, comforters, but we can only say counselors, because all they did was counsel condemnation. And we may never say the words, but by our actions and attitudes, we'll always be condemning people and looking down on them when we don't know everything that's going on. A second and very major implication from this is we have to not allow the devil to torment us when what we want in life is not happening. I say that because I've known people, maybe it's a couple, and they want to have a child and they can't. Or they're single and they want to get married and they can't. Or they're married and they want to be single and they can't. And they look back with a fine-tooth comb over their past life and try to figure out 
What did I do that God is punishing me by not letting me have this? And yet, unless you're living in unrepentant, continual sin, God is not punishing you. I choose those words specifically because we all struggle with sin. If every sin led to immediate punishment, then we would need to get a fine-tooth comb. But God is merciful. And if we're repenting and confessing our sin, just like Psalm 51, he forgives us. He doesn't put his wrath on you. He put it on his son and he gives you his goodness. So if you can honestly look at your life and say, yes, I'm struggling like Romans 7 says, but I'm confessing and I'm seeking to put it to death, then rest in the fact that that suffering you're dealing with is somehow in God's goodness. It's not in his judgment upon you. But Jesus doesn't stop there, for then he adds, and unless you repent, you all will likewise be destroyed. The wages of sin is death, and our death may not come through violence like the Galileans had from Pilate, but one day we will all die and face God's judgment. And the death Jesus is warning of here, though, is not physical death, but eternal death, separation from God and judgment. And he's saying, look, the only hope on that day is that we've repented or we will be judged. So they first try and evade God calling them to repent through Jesus by saying, well, but but what about Pilate? He's a pretty bad dude. What about what that human did? Except now Jesus is going to avoid a second evasion tactic by going but what about if god directly did something well then god must clearly be judging them then well that's not the case because here he tells of this event that happened in their time this tower in salome fell over and killed 18 people again we don't have many more details but salome is right on the outskirts of jerusalem and so this would have been an event that everyone would have talked about did you hear that tower fell and 18 people died and you can almost imagine them saying "Woo." But they are pretty bad people. God was letting them have it. And yet Jesus again asked, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He's again wanting them to stop focusing on everyone out there and focus on the person who's in here. And Jesus answers his own question in verse 5. No, they weren't worse sinners. And he's reiterating that evil events do not always happen due to some evil we've done. It doesn't matter if it comes indirectly through another human like Pilate. It doesn't matter if it comes directly from God through natural disasters. The question is not how do you fall in your death. The question is how are you going to stand before God after your death? And so Jesus again adds, unless you repent, you all likewise will be destroyed. Jesus is saying, look, we're all going to die. The circumstances of your death are irrelevant. The question is, are you ready for that time? Your death may come suddenly. It may come slowly. It may come through a murderer like Pilate. It might come through slow old age. But when it comes, we will stand before God. And to stand before God, we must have repented. But that brings us back to our initial question. What is repentance? Well, I want to say two things. First, repentance is a core part of how we respond to Jesus in the gospel. Please get out your Bible if you don't have it open and flip to Luke chapter 3 because here in the beginning of Luke we see John the Baptist preparing people for Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 3, if you look at verse 2, the middle of verse 2, 
talks about John, the son of Zechariah, who came in the wilderness, and he went into all of the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in the verses that go on, he calls the people to repent. But now some people say, well, yes, that's what John the Baptist was doing to get people ready. But Jesus had this message, another message. But flip over two chapters to Luke chapter 5, verses 29 to 32. It says there in Luke chapter 5, 29 to 32, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so this was the message of Jesus. But this wasn't just the message of Jesus for his time, but then it transformed into the message of faith alone later. No, flip to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Jesus has now been crucified. He's risen, and he's on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to his disciples. Luke chapter 24, verse, beginning of verse 45, says, And Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So what's supposed to happen due to his death and resurrection? Repentance is supposed to be proclaimed. And that's exactly what happens. Flip past the Gospel of John to the history of the church, of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is the first sermon of the Apostles. And what does Peter say? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so they are giving the exact message that Jesus said for them to do. And not just them, this was passed on to the others, because the Apostle Paul, flip over to Acts chapter 26. The Apostle Paul is conveying to a king what he's doing, what is his message, what in the world is he saying in Acts chapter 26, verses 19 and 20, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not a disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Thus, throughout the New Testament, from John the Baptist all the way through all the apostles, we see that how do you respond to Jesus? You repent. But the second thing we need to say is that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin of responding to God. There's not two messages in the Bible. One which says, well, trust in Christ alone. And then another message that says, well, you have to repent of your sins. That's actually the same thing just looked at from two different angles or two sides of the same coin. Nor, as some wrongly teach, there's not one message for evangelism. Well, this is what I preach when there's unbelievers, but oh, I'm talking to believers. Now, here's the message for believers. There's one gospel message for unbelievers and believers, and they are tied together. See, repentance literally just means to change one's mind. However, in the biblical way of thinking, if you've changed your mind, 
your actions will change. In my college years, I worked for a camp in 2003. We were in Ohio, and we were at the last night of the camp. I was way out, probably on the million and one sheep, counting away. And all of a sudden, I hear this blaring noise. And I groggily wake up, and I stumble in the hallway, and I see this haze. And I see the fire alarms flashing. And my mind went from, I should be sleeping, to fire. So what did I do? I left the building. Because I had repented. I had changed my mind from, now's the time to sleep, to now's the time to get out of the building. And because I'd repented, what happened to my actions? They changed. I don't walk to my bed, I walked out. So if you've changed your mind about something, it always leads to a change in your actions. So let's tie this together. How is this the flip side of faith? Well, because if you trust in Christ, that means before you weren't. You have changed your mind about Christ. And if you've changed your mind about what your sin was like and who Christ is, well, then your actions are going to follow in following Christ. And so faith and repentance are the same thing, but from different angles. If you have faith that never leads to you changing your actions, that's the faith James warns about in James 2 that's empty. It's the type of faith that demons and devils have. Genuine saving faith always leads to a change in action. And this is so important for us to understand because sometimes by teaching, but just sometimes by the actions of Christians and churches, we give the idea, well, if you just say these words, then you're okay with God. If you just understand these facts, then you can be saved. But Jesus is showing it's more than understanding facts. It's believing those facts in a way that it changes your life. Don't hear me wrong. Not that, those fa- not that changing saves you, but that it shows, it reveals that you're saved. Here, though, Jesus, rather than having us focus on other people's sins, he says, look, focus on your own. But not only should we focus on our own, Jesus says, but we need to bear fruit before it's too late. That's the second section in verses 6 through 9. Because he gives this parable to explain the seriousness and the urgency of them responding. And he tells of a man who had a vineyard or a garden, and he goes and he plants a fig tree in it. Now you got to realize, Jesus is talking to people who have gardens, who have farms. And these are not side hobbies like, hey, you know, I'm you're really tired at work, so I have a garden on my spare time. No, they have these to live. They know what gardening is like. It's essential to have fruit and vegetables or they won't have them through the winter. And he says, this man plants and he comes and he looks and there's no fruit. So he goes in and gets the gardener. He says, look, we need to chop this down. It's stealing essential nutrients from the trees that actually are bearing fruit. We need those trees, so we need to get rid of this one. And the gardener says, well, no, no, hold on. Let me give another year and i'm going to dig around it and i'm going to put manure down and that will help in other words he's saying let's aerate the soil and give it fertilizer when i was in high school i started playing some golf and after a couple times i was on the course and i saw these dime-shaped holes all over with little pieces of dirt i was like what in the world is going on so someone explained oh they go through the machine and they aerate it they take plugs of dirt out That way, oxygen can get down to the roots. And that's what the man's talking about here. I'm going to dig around. I'm going to lift up the dirt so the oxygen can get down. I'm going to put fertilizer or manure, the fertilizer of their day, so it can help it, so it can 
grow. But then he says, look, if it doesn't grow after this extra year, then we will cut it down. And Jesus' parable is really conveying two truths. God is mercifully patient. And second, God's judgment is coming. Before we look at those, we need to remember that we need to understand a parable for what it mainly conveys and not try to push it to every logical conclusion that might be drawn. And I say that because here, the owner of the vineyard is not God the Father. And Jesus is not the gardener who goes, hold on, you really want to judge these people, but come on, give them another chance. I'm going to give them another year. As though God the Father is vengeful and wrathful, but yet he's got this merciful son and he's looking out for us. Good thing we got Jesus on our team. That's not the story at all. That's heresy. That was taught by Marcion. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have always, for all eternity, worked together in unity, in perfect harmony. If we can speak this way, God the Father planned our redemption. God the Son secured through his death and resurrection our redemption. And God the Spirit applies our redemption but there's no people that one of them is like, I really want them, and the other's going, nah, I'm, they're not really my type. All of them want mercy to triumph over judgment. As well, this story is not at all showing an impatient and judgmental owner. Again, these people understood farming. They understood gardening. If you have a tree that's not bearing fruit, you get rid of it. They need every square inch to be productive. And so, the owner wanting to get rid of the tree was the right thing to do, not being a judgmental owner. In fact, the, that he allowed it to have another year was a sign that he was merciful and patient. By the third year, it should have been bearing fruit. And thus, Jesus first wants them and us to realize God is patient. He gives us more time. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So don't give up on your family member, your co-worker, your neighbor, your friend, whoever it may be. Keep spiritually digging, so to speak, digging around the tree, aerating the ground. Keep spreading the fertilizer of God's word. Perhaps the fruit will come the next year. But along with conveying God's merciful patience, Jesus is conveying that God's judgment is coming. You know, some of us may need to ask ourselves, what am I waiting for? What will need to happen in my life that I finally say, okay, I will repent. I will surrender. Will you need more calamity in your life? Will you need some other horrible situation? Why are you waiting? Because as Paul warns in Romans 2, 4-5, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't wait. Bear fruit now, Jesus is warning. Jesus is being patient, he says, but there will be too late. And so both mercy and judgment are being held out. But as John the Baptist said in Luke 3, 9, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Now is the time to repent and come to Christ, to bear fruit, 
according to that repentance. And so we can overly focus on mercy and not realize God's judgment is coming. Or we can only really focus on God's judgment and not realize his merciful patience. And yet Jesus says both are true. Thus we should be repenting and bearing fruit in our life. Fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So as the Spirit digs in the soil of your life, are you bearing these fruits? Are there fruits that a year from now, when the Master comes back to look, that should be on your tree that are not there now? So Jesus is saying repentance is an essential part of our responding to God, and without it, we will not be forgiven, accepted, and saved by God. However, we often try to avoid repentance. And there could be no clear illustration of this. And in the book of Judges, in Judges 10, so flip in your Bible, got the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, and then Judges. And in Judges 10, we see the fake repentance that we can often have. So after the book of Joshua, before the book of Ruth, Judges, and in chapter 10, look at verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now at this point, if you're a modern Christian ministry, you're counting up the number of people, and you're sending out the next quarterly report. 10,000 people saved. 10,000 people just confessed their sin They are now on their way to glory. But notice what it says next in verses 11 through 14. And the Lord said to them, to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you. And you cried out to me and I have saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Well, what in the world is going on? I thought if you cried unto the Lord, he would forgive you. That if you cried out, he would save you. Yet they're crying out, and God is saying, I'm not going to save you. I am not going to deliver you. What is going on? Is it that God actually does get tired? Jesus kind of got it wrong with the prodigal son that there does come a time where, no, I'm not going to save you anymore. Well, if we stopped there and didn't read the rest of the story, we might draw that wrong conclusion. But notice what it says next in verses 15 through 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Do you see what's going on? When they cry out in verse 11, verse 10, they still have their foreign gods in their homes. They're saying, hey God, we don't want the judgment, so will you get rid of that? But tonight we're going to go worship our false god again. They're clinging to their false gods while crying out for God to save them. And God says, look, if you're going to keep clinging on to your false gods, well, then let them save you. So they weren't 
genuinely coming to God for salvation. They were just coming to God to cleanse their conscience, to get rid of the consequences of their sin. And yet, repentance is not just feeling guilty over your sin. Anyone can feel guilty over their sin. You don't need the Spirit of Christ to feel guilt. Repentance is not just feeling horrible about the consequences of your sin. Many people feel horrible about the consequences of their sin. Israel hated the consequences of their sin, but they weren't repenting. Repentance is when we realize the seriousness of our sin and we turn from it to Christ. C.S. Lewis writes about this by referring to our condition, our sinful condition as a whole. He says, now what sort was the hole that man, humankind, got himself into? He had tried to set up on his own, to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, real, sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That is the way out of a hole. This process of surrender is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It's something much harder than eating humble pie. It means unlearning all of the self-conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing a part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. He goes on, remember this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation, a kind of death, is not something God demands of you before he'll take you back, in which he could let you go off if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. This is what it means to go back to God, that you're saying, I'm surrendering the idols in my life, and I'm calling you the one I worship. Lewis ends, if you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. It can't happen. So have you repented or are you avoiding repentance? Like the people in the story of Luke, you can avoid it by looking at all kinds of worse people in our society. You can look at all these horrible people. Well, what about them? Well, what about that person? What about my neighbor? They're really horrible. And Jesus says, well, don't worry about them. What about what's going on inside your own heart? What about the anger and bitterness that you have? How come that evil is not immediately punished? You can avoid repentance by looking at past some past event you did. Well, I remember fondly when I was a child, and I did this deed, and I prayed, and I know I've repented because of that. Well, that's good, but are you repenting today? Is there fruit in your life today? And so we have to ask, are you avoiding repentance? Well, the woman at our church in Ohio did not, but her boyfriend did. So what happened is the boyfriend stood her up. He didn't show up to the wedding. The family was there. The friends were there. We had the short ceremony before the service ready to go, and he's not there. But she was committed, and so she said, I still need to make a confession whether I get married or not. So she stood up, and she confessed her sin to the church. And then we found out afterwards, he said, it's just going to cost too much. Though I promised for years that we'd get married one day, we're not going to. So she made a move out. And so she lived faithful to the end. 
But did it really matter? Yes, it mattered. We should seek to be obedient every day. We should bear fruit of repentance now. But then something even more bizarre happened. One day as he climbed a ladder, not too long after this, he slipped, fell, and died. He wanted, he needed that money. He didn't even get to live another year to enjoy it. What do you think? Do you think he was a worse sinner than her, than you, than me? Well, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It doesn't matter if it's 40 years from now or 40 seconds from now. It might be because God's directly punishing you. It might be indirectly, but we will all perish. And unless you repent, you will perish eternally. And so come now. Jesus is mercifully patient. And he offers hope. All you have to do is lay down your arms and trust in him. And he welcomes all who come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we love our idols. We want to cling to them and we ask that you would rip them from our hands. That we would be repenting and turning to you. That you would be the joy of our life. Lord, give us the grace to turn and see the joy that is found only in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.